when I look back on it now, literally right now, this precise moment, I'm kind of proud of that. You know, that I, I was able to, to instill enough trust that they were going to give this guy with three months experience working on the ships this entire responsibility and able to help Chris get home to take care of his mom. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. Linked insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today's guest is Jonathan Lightfoot. But before he introduces himself, I just want all my listeners to support No Degree, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, do all those things, support the podcast. So, Jonathan, do you mind giving a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. My name is Jonathan Lightfoot. I am currently running my family's 37-year-old IT consulting company called Symbiote Incorporated. Uh, we do a lot of uh, government contract work, and we've just started uh, recently when I came on board with uh, B2B um, type work. You know, my, my life is long, so I don't want to bore yeah. everybody with a long intro and everything else, but I'm, I'm glad to be here and I'm ready for your questions. All right. Awesome. So now you kind of, you come from an IT background. Now you're more in the leadership position, but let's kind of take it back. How was high school like for you and what do you want to be in high school? High school for me was, it was pretty good. I, I, I enjoyed my time there. I wasn't popular. I wasn't a geek. I just floated between. I wanted to be in business. I knew that at a younger age, I knew I wanted to be in business, um, but I didn't know what exactly. Um, I did like computers. So, you know, I got my first computer when I was like 11 years old. Okay. So I, um, I knew I liked it and all, but primarily in high school, I wanted to join the Navy. Okay. <laughs> what was your motivation? Any reason why? Well, for one, my grandfather was in the Navy. Okay. Um, and this is going to sound silly, but... I was a really big fan. I still am a big fan of James yeah. Bond. Okay. He was in the Royal Navy. And I thought yeah, yeah. the Navy's where to go, you know. And I like to travel. And I knew that the Navy had the most travel of yeah. all the services. So I said, I'm going to join the Navy. So my entire high school career, I thought, I, you know, I, I dabbled and thought I'd go to college. But I think I was going to go to the Navy. Okay. And because of events in high school, um, I really didn't have a choice. So. Okay. So, did you have any jobs in high school? Oh, yeah. I got my very first job. I was 13, 14. Um, well, before that, I used to have my own lawnmowing business, right? So, yeah. you know, and, and I was pretty successful at it. I had like, at yeah. least, I think at one point I had 15 yards I would do every Saturday. Saturday oh, Saturday. wow. Yeah. And I was charging at the time like $10 a yard. I was I was definitely underpaying myself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in high school, you just think like, "Wow, ten And back yeah. then, you're like ten dollars. I could. Whoa, I got food and everything. Hundred fifty dollars in that yeah. one day in high school. I mean, even now, man, hundred fifty dollars cash is still not too bad. Exactly. You know. Um. So yeah, but my first official. Well, no, I had a kind of an under table job. I was like fourteen, where I worked as a uh, busboy at a truck stop. Okay. <laughs> Uh, that was cool though. I liked it. The, the truck stop was really cool. Um, I could make whatever I wanted to. And those truck drivers were really smart. They would tell me stories about them and I liked it doing that. But my very first official, official job, um, I was 15 and I worked for Target. Uh, it was a, well, no, no, I was 15 and I worked for a grocery store in Texas called Skaggs Alpha Beta and I was a um, bagger. 
and I wanted to be a cashier. And I, I was with them for at least two years. And I kept saying, I want to be a cashier. I want to be a cashier. I mean, I would take up shifts that weren't mine. I would show up early. I would work late. And they never made me a cashier, except they would always hire somebody. You know, like, why did you pass me over? I didn't realize what was going on. So one day I just quit. And um, my dad was mad at me because I had quit the job without having another job lined up or thing. And, um, you know, I did what most kids do, you know, at that age, I think I was like 16. I, I was over at the mall and I just got, started going to the different stores in the mall, putting in applications and they all kept saying, no, 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 they weren't hiring, what have you. And, um, I was going my way home and I saw they were building this new store and, uh, I didn't know what the store was. It was just, I saw these big red balls and I didn't know what that was, but I saw they were just building it and they were hiring. So I went up, got into, went to the trailer, fill out an application and I said, I want to be a cashier. And um, they initially said, no, they already had all their cashiers. And um, I went home, I was kind of depressed, but like two days later, they called me back and said, hey, are you interested in being a cashier still? And I was like, sure. Um, back then to work at Target, the orientation, I don't know if, what it's like now, we're talking back in 87. They were used to be very strict about orientation. So if you were late, you got kicked out. And that's what happened. Somebody was late, they got kicked out of the program. Yeah. <laughs> opening and I slotted in there. And I loved it. I mean, I worked at I worked at Target. I would have been my sophomore, my junior year, moved to Atlanta, Georgia. There was another Target that was opening across the street from high school. I walked over there, said, Hey, I used to work at Target in Texas. I'd love to work here. And they hired me on as the um assistant front end supervisor. Wow. So I'm like Seventeen years old. And um when I moved to Atlanta I ended up going to what they call open campus school um, because I had too many credits. So I could have mm. gone to a regular school, but I would have had to sit for like six classes. Yeah. Her counselor was like, hey, if you go to open campus, you only got to take English. And they had an English class that started like at six o'clock in the morning. So I would be out of there by 8 a.m. But open campus was not a place you wanted to go. That was where the undesirable students went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I figured, I was like, well, shoot, I'm going to be there from six to eight. Those guys are going to be sleeping. So by the time they're coming to school, I'm leaving. And um, so I went, did that. And then I was able to go right across the street and take up like a, I think it was like an 830 shift. <laughs> and I worked all day, you know, and, and I love wow, it. Wow, that's so cool. Now, let's kind of go back. You said the grocery store before you figured out what was going on. Do you know why they weren't hiring you as a cashier? Let's just say there were no black cashiers. Okay. Ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'm like, there weren't any black cashiers ever. So Okay. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought. And it's unfortunate because sometimes it's like, and it's good you sort of left an environment like that because that environment, you will never move up and they'll never value you and you just end up getting bitter and all so, that. That change does not exist anymore, by the way. They're out of business. Okay. Good, good. They deserve <laughs> to be out of business. Now, so you worked at, you know, this Target, you know, you're doing a good job. How was it being a supervisor at 17 years old? It was pretty cool. You know, I helped with put together schedules and, you know, I wasn't like a power get to your head type person. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I still rang stuff up and, you know, helped filled in when people did couldn't come in and things like that. And it was really a lot of fun. Um, the store manager, actually, the store manager at the one in Georgia was friends with the store manager in Texas I work for. Yeah, so yeah. wow. I was there, he asked me the store number and he called over. He's like, hey, that's my buddy. And I guess he said, you know, that guy's awesome. That's why he hired me real quickly. Um, but they were talking about sending me, I don't even know if this still exists, but they wanted to send me to um, something called Target University. Wow. 
which I think it was in Colorado at the time. He's like, yeah, yeah you know, Target University, you could be a department head. And I remembered um, the store manager. He's like, one day you could be a store manager. I mean, this is pretty hectic stuff for a 17-year-old. Like, yeah, wow. yeah. But um, I had to decline that because I'd already joined the Navy. So I was okay. like, oh, I already joined the Navy, so <laughs> can't do it. How was the Navy like for you? Was it like what you expected and all that? Because I know you had this dream. How was that? It was what I expected. I, I loved my time in the Navy. I spent nine years in. Um, it was a, a great experience. Um, I was an operations specialist. So if you ever see a Navy movie and you see the room where they're in with all the radar and the yeah. sonar and all, it's a dark room with red lights in it. That's where I worked in a, in a room in CIC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I made a lot of great friends, had a lot of great adventures, got to travel my butt off, went to war. <laughs> Um, it was everything, I, everything, and, and then some for me. And um, I know there are a lot of people who they don't bleed. They're the same. They don't. They say, "Oh, my military time was awful," or what have you. I didn't have that experience. I loved it. Okay. No, I mean, I'm. It's good. I mean, everybody has all different types of experience, but I'm glad that yours went well. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned, kind of, from your time in the military? <laughs> the biggest one: all good, all plans, no matter how good they are, go to hell after the first shot is fired. Okay. Yeah, and what's that Mike Tyson quote? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So I guess that's that applies to the military too. Yep. Um, some other things I learned, you know, you never know, even though you may have a different background than someone else, you never know how close you could become. You know, I knew one guy, he was from West Virginia, the mountains of West Virginia. And uh, he had told me, he said, I'd never even seen a black person until I came in the Navy. And, and, uh, but we're still really good friends. He go every year, he sends me this big Tupperware of um, deer jerky. Wow. <laughs> he hunts deer up there and all. But, um, you know, it was interesting to, to hear his background and for him to hear my background. And, you know, we, we, we developed this strange sort of friendship connection with each other and all. Um, so that was another big lesson. Um, the other one is, you know, if you want to do something, do it. Don't think that you can't do something. Um, because I, I was a member of several operations that were just impossible. We shouldn't be able to do that. And we did it, you know, through grit and just getting it done type of a thing. So I think that, that's another big lesson is just don't, don't let, don't let anybody hold you back. Yeah. And oftentimes it's ourselves holding ourselves, right? We think we can't do it. It's impossible. It's never been done. People of my background, I don't have the skills for it, but we often have a lot more skills than we. So you spent nine years in Navy. What was the reason you left? My second duty station, I was in, I was stationed in London, England. Yeah. And that was a great experience. I got to meet a lot of, of great people. But London, England was known as a, um, a twilight tour for people retiring. So, you know, we had very senior officers, admirals who were just, you know, do this last three years, they're going to retire. So, you know, breathe life, you know, kind of a thing. So I got to talk to a lot of senior um, officers. And I got to be careful how I word this. They encouraged me to think and question things. And um, that was right. That was before I got So that was between 1993 to 1996, I want to say. I was there. So there was, um, there was some issues in the Middle East that were going on. And I got the opportunity to meet with... Um, Muslims, people of of, the, of Islam, 
Yeah, I'm Muslim. So pretty cool. Yeah, so I'm Muslim. So just FYI, you know, they were pretty cool, and I got to eat with them and party with them, hang out with them. So when I came back to stateside and I went to a, a worship unit, the, the the mindset at the time was getting ready for, we knew something was going to pop off in the Middle East again, right? So we already had Desert Storm in it back in 92, but we knew something else was going to pop off. So there was a lot of sentiment against the Middle East and the people of the Middle East. And I didn't really agree with it. I was like, no, I can't. You know, the thing is, when, when you live overseas, too, you see the world differently, right? I can't just watch CNN and just say, okay, that's what CNN says. That's the way it is. No, now I got to watch CNN, Al Jazeera, BBC, because I'm like, what's, I need to know all this, what's going on really around the whole topic of, of everything. So I just realized that um, if I was going to be successful in the Navy and if I want the Navy to be successful, because I love the Navy, I still love the Navy with all my heart. I could not be a voice in the military any longer because I was going, I couldn't just take orders again anymore and just, just carry them out. So lucky for me, um, they had an opportunity to get out. I got out and, um, you know, like I said, I still love the Navy. It, it's still my biggest thing. Um, I tell people the person I am today is in large part due to my time in the military, in the Navy. And all, but I just knew that I was not, I was not going to be a very good shipmate anymore. Okay. No, you did your time. You, you serve. You did it. No, that's very good to know. So now you leave, right? What was the plan? Like, what'd you do? Was it like, Hey, am I going to relax? Am I going to get a job? How wasn't, what were the next step for you? You know, I had a few thousand dollars saved from the, my time in the military. Um, but really not that much. So I had to hustle. Right. So before I knew I was getting out six months before it happened and I started hustling, um, trying to get a job. Now, keep in mind, this is around 1990, 1998. Right. So the Internet's not what it is today. Back then, um, we were I want to say we we're right. We we're right. Either right after the start of the Internet bubble building up and all. So, you know, I was, you know, deployed on a ship. So we had Internet access somewhat kind of. Um, through AOL. <laughs> yeah. But I managed to find a job in California. And um, so when I left, um, I flew to California and, you know, stayed at this flea bit, flea bitten motel for yeah. a few weeks until I got a couple, you know, weeks of paychecks under my belt and I know I could move into an apartment and all. But yeah, I, I went to work immediately. There was no relaxation time. Okay. So what, what job did you get? Um, I was actually the operations manager for a um, call center. Oh. And that was, that was just crazy. You know, um, we had people basically answering phones, making minimum wage. So it was not uncommon for them not to come to work. So I would have to sometimes do their shift or two people shifts back to back when, you know, get in early. I was like, it was like I was blamed for everything and I had to fix everything kind of a thing and all. But I learned a lot about managing people, which, was different than the military. So it was a good transition from, you know, in the military, you know, I was an E5. So if you said, hey, do this, nobody they questioned. Did it. They right. just did it. Yeah. But then I went into this civilian world and it wasn't the same. It wasn't a matter of just because you have a position that somebody's going to do something. Um, you have to establish trust and all those other 
soft skills around that and get to get jobs done. And, you know, it's pretty hard to convince people sometimes, you know, they're making minimum wage yeah. to come to work. When and that was like, what? Saying, hey, I'll give you $50. Just hang out with me for the day. You know? <laughs> that was what, what was minimum wage back then? It was like three, four dollars. Um, I want to say it was like, I can't remember, but I do remember our highest paid person was making like nine fifty or nine seventy five an hour. I mean, yeah. it was a different time, right? That money went further, but yeah. yeah. A little a little bit. It was in Southern California, so it could only go so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so I was now, there for a year. Okay. So what job came after that? After that, um, I flew from well, uh, your people in California are gonna hate me, but I hated my my year in California. And I barely go back to that state. It just, I didn't have a good experience there. I didn't like it at all. Uh, but I, I'm from Miami, Florida. So I flew back to the East Coast to Miami and um, I took on a couple of jobs until I found uh, my, what I call my perhaps best job since leaving the Navy. And yeah. Well, what was that job? Oh, the best job? <laughs> I worked for this little bitty cruise line company. You may have heard of it called Norwegian Cruise Line. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I got hired there. I worked for a company. I was actually hired there as a contractor. So I was hired through electronic data systems. Some of your readers or listeners may know who that is. Uh, most probably don't. They've evolved and currently their name now is Periton. But um, EDS was, uh, you know, people talk about fangs. Yeah, I would say EDS was a fang back in the 90s or yeah, early yeah, yeah. 2000s, right? But they hired me to work the help desk. So um, what they didn't tell me is they didn't have a help desk. <laughs> so it was just me and I had to establish this help desk thing. And then we hired some more people and, and it was a lot of fun. I learned um, desktop support. So I'd go on desktop support calls. And um, that's where I, I want to say I really got deep into IT, did some server admin, learned AS400 mainframes and everything else. And um, I did, I was at corporate for a year. And I had mentioned in passing that I wanted to work on the cruise ships, but I couldn't because I was a contractor and only NCL employees could go work on the ships. Also, working on the ships at Norwegian Cruise Line at the time was an honor. You had to be really, really good. I mean, everybody in headquarters, if somebody from the ships came, it was like, oh, so-and-so is coming in from the ships, you know. Because that's, you know, that's the, the customer folk. That, that's where the money is made is on those ships and all. So you had to be really good in your field. And on the ships, um, IT-wise, they have a system, they have a job, two jobs called the systems manager and the assistant systems manager. And basically the systems manager is in charge of every computer that you could think of on the cruise ship. Okay. So if you've ever been on a cruise, everything from that checkout computer to the computers they use at the shore excursions, to the cash registers, the handheld things. Basically, if it had a computer chip in it, it's the systems manager's responsibility to keep it up and running, right? So you have to know a lot of stuff about IT, networking, computers, programming, server administration. Just you, it's it's an all-encompassing yeah. job, right? So anyway, the rumor was out that I wanted to work on the ships and people knew I was in the Navy and they said, oh, you should do it. And uh, one day um, I was working late. I went to the bathroom and um, I was washing my hands and out of, out of the stall comes the vice president of IT. And so he's washing his hands. He's like, oh, you're working late. I was like, yeah, you are too. He's like, yeah, yeah. He says, I heard you want to work on the ships. I said, yes, I do. Um, but I can't. And he was like, why not? 
See, over at Norwegian at the time, even though I was a contractor, you weren't treated any differently. So we were treated like employees. I don't even think he knew that I was a contractor. <laughs> but I said, you know, I'm a contractor with EDS. And he says, oh, okay. He was like, well, never say never. And also, as I was leaving the bathroom, he's like, you know, I think the EDS contract is coming due. About three weeks later or so, my manager comes in. He's kind of gruff looking at me and he's like, you, you, you talk to the right person. You go upstairs to the fifth floor and talk to shipboard HR uh, for an interview. I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, I went upstairs and found the HR person I was supposed to talk to. And it was the weirdest interview I ever had. <laughs> I sit down and she starts talking about the different ships, the different itineraries, saying, oh, I've been on this ship and it's a great itinerary because you get to see this, you get to see that. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. And she's got like these brochures of all the ships and yeah. everything. And then at the end, and I remember I'm there thinking I'm here for an interview, right? Huh. At the end, she says, uh, so what ship would you like to go on? What? <laughs> she's like, well, what ship would you? And I, I remember I picked the Norwegian Dream because they were out of um, Europe. And I said, I'll take the Dream. I, I would want to go on the Dream. And she's like, okay. And then she just turned on, turned in her seat and starts typing. And I'm sitting there for a while. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I was like, um, are you going to ask me any questions? And she said, oh, yeah. Do you have a passport? I was like, um, I think my password's expired. And uh, she pulls out a, pay, a notepad and she writes down this thing on a notepad. She picks up the phone. She's talking to somebody. She gives me the note on the notepad and says, report here tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And it was the address to the Miami passport office yeah. where you can get a passport in like 24 hours. They're yeah, yeah, yeah. fast. So I'm like, okay. And I was like, is that it? She's like, yeah, I'm just typing up your orders. You'll be leaving in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that was my interview. I was like, you're not going to ask me any questions or anything like that. But um, I went out there and I was going to be what they call an assistant systems manager. So I was going to assist the systems manager. And um, two or three weeks later, I'm flying out to, to Europe, to Dover, England, flew into Heathrow and took, a, took the bus down to Dover. And I reported to the ship. Wow. Um, I was told originally I would be an assistant for about two years. Yeah. And then I would be eligible to become a systems manager. Well, I was there for about f three months, and yeah. I was for the systems manager. <laughs> okay, wow, man. You knew the right people, but you did the right thing. So I want to ask you, the person you met in the bathroom, did you make a good impression on him before that he knew that, hey, I got to hire him? Oh, yeah, Frank Rao. He's, he was the vice president of IT for Norwegian Cruise Line at the time. He's retired. Yeah. Um, we're still connected on LinkedIn. But yeah, he knew me. I mean, I, I'd helped him with a couple of things. We'd had meetings, and I was... Um, that was a weird time. So when I was working there, that was around 1999. Yeah. And Norwegian Cruise Line was on AS400 mainframes. Okay. And they were shifting to PCs, right? So I didn't know anything about uh, mainframes, but I knew PCs for my time yeah. in the Navy. So I was there talking about, you know, helping with the transition, answering the phones as well on the help desk. So, you know, and I was writing papers for him about, you know, what these computers can be done, what we can do with them. I mean, believe it or not, back then, a lot of businesses were still like, well, what are we going to do with these computers? You know, everything's in a frame. You know, what's the computer going to do? Kind of a thing and all. So he knew of me. It wasn't just out of the blue and all. But naturally, I never spoke to him about working on the ships because that would have been improper. You know, I only spoke with him about whatever task I was doing that dealt with him. Wow. So it's just interesting that you being in the bathroom at the right time changed the direction of your career. So now yes. you, 
you you got promoted in three months. Why do you think you got promoted so quick? Like, what did you do? Exactly why I got promoted so quick. <laughs> so being on those cruise ships, being an assistant systems manager is a great job, right? Because you do whatever the systems manager tells you to do. You really don't have any responsibilities. You're not really accountable to anything. So you're just there to do whatever they tell you to do. You know, if they say upgrade that server, upgrade that server. If they say go set up the Wi-Fi, and back then Wi-Fi was not what it is today. It was go set that up. You did that. Set up the checkup here. Do that. You know, if my pager went off, I'd go and reset a, a cash register or something. But most time, you know, I'd spend my time in a crew bar after work. So that was where I was partying with my friends that I made out on the ships and just having a good old time. And uh, one day I, I had answered a call and I went back to my cabin and I got a, a page from the systems manager. He says, report to the IT office. And I'm like, oh, I'm thinking I'm in trouble. Like, oh, did I, did I not do my maintenance? Did I forget something? And I walk in and he's like, hey, yeah, Dennis wants to talk to you. Dennis was our shoreside boss. And I was like, why does Dennis want to talk to me? <laughs> you know. And uh, listen, the systems manager has to leave. Because um, his mom needs to be put into a home. And unfortunately, I don't have another systems manager to send out there. And I need you to take over a systems manager. I was like, oh, really? Uh, you know, you know, these ships are huge and the computer systems are large. I'm like, I've only been here for three months. And now you're going to put me in charge of this entire ship, if you will. And um, I remember the systems manager, Chris, he had his bags packed already. <laughs> yeah. We were in Germany. He had his bags packed already. And, you know, Dennis hung up the phone and Chris like clapped me on the shoulder and says, you'll be fine. <laughs> he grabbed his bag and walked out the door. You know? <laughs> so here I am in the IT room and I, I must have been in a catatonic state because I just sat there for a good while. Like, oh, crap. What am I going to do? What if something breaks? I can't fix it. <laughs> And um, they didn't have an assistant at the time because it was just me. I was the assistant. So now I'm in charge of this entire ship. I have to answer all these calls all by myself. So that's how I got promoted, you know. But I think a large part of it was um, when I was there, you know, I worked hard. I learned as much as I could, as fast as I could. I tried to do a good job, just what I've always been trained to do. And I think that I don't think if I if I hadn't had that history, Dennis would have probably told Chris he can't go home. So when I look back on it now, literally right now at this precise moment, I'm kind of proud of that, you know, that I, I was able to, to instill enough trust that they were going to give this guy with three months experience working on the ships, this entire responsibility and able to help Chris get home to take care of his mom. No, that's amazing. Now, how are the first three months like for you? Cause now you got promoted. You're in this catatonic state. Now you actually got to do the work. How, how, how'd you get up to speed? It was hectic. Luckily the ship, I had a lot of friends on the ship, so they all knew me. Um, remember, I spent a lot of my time in the um, crew bar. <laughs> so we we're all buddies. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Y'all take your time. You know, like, you know, half the registers on the or half the computers on the, the front desk don't work. And they're like, take your time. We know it's taking you some time. And all. so they were really patient. And, you know, I figured out you know what to do and um, everything else. And um, but I, I quickly got up to speed. You know, um, I've always credited being a very fast learner. And I was able to get to speed pretty quickly on what needed to be done. And luckily on the ships, we had what we call SOPs, standard operating procedures. So if it went wrong, I had a guide I could use that could tell me, okay, step by step, here's how you do this and things like that. Plus also a lot of the systems that interface directly with Shoreside were systems I worked with when I was in headquarters. 
Yeah, so yeah. That a lot too. Wow, that's cool. So how long did you keep the job with the Norwegian Cruise Lines? I say with Norwegian Cruise Line, I left them in 2006. So seven years, six, seven years. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed my time, worked on several of the different ships and, and things like that. But I ended up leaving. I was in Hawaii one day, Honolulu. We had just pulled in. I was doing the Pride of America at the time. And a friend of mine, she worked at Hawaiian Telecom. And um, we found out that we were both in Honolulu. So we had lunch today that on, a, on a day. And uh, she said, I can get you a job in Hawaii Telecom. Why don't you come work for me? Ah, ha, ha. Yeah, whatever. Went, got on my cruise ship. We went, did another week. We met for lunch again. And she says, I got a job right now. I will hire you for it right now. So I took the job at that moment and walked on the ship, went to HR and said, I, I, I resigned. <laughs> Went to my cabin, packed up my stuff, and walked off the ship. Wow, so that, that's interesting. Luckily, there was another systems manager in the area. Yeah. So they would just be, and he wanted to come, he wanted to work on the ships. Okay. But he was a shore side one, and they would never give him a chance. Yeah, so yeah. So when I said, I want to leave, they said, hey, guy, here's your shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The ships. <laughs> no, that's amazing that, you know, it just shows how the importance of building relationships, but also doing work so that these relationships will deliver. Now, I want to just discuss like working on a cruise ship because that's a different lifestyle, right? Like you live on the ship, um, family life and all this stuff. Can you discuss some of that? Well, at the time I was single, that's a big plus if you're going to work on cruise ships, right? It is a, um, you work seven days. It's a tough life. Now, I was fortunate because as an assistant and assistant manager, we're, we're senior leadership, right? So we're all leaders. So I had my own stateroom and I didn't have that, you know, you hear, you see those videos, they're like, oh, there's six roommates or no, we didn't have that. I had my own stateroom. My room, my staterooms are actually larger than some of the guest cabins. <laughs> um, I had the ability to work. I could go eat in the restaurants, the regular restaurants, go to the bar, go see the shows. I got to work. I got to go off ship a lot to go on shore to do shore excursions. But you do work seven days. Every day. And as an officer, I only did four months on, two months off. So you work four months, take two months vacation, then you go to another ship or the same ship. I would get sent to different ships, though. It is all-consuming. So in my cabin, for instance, I had a computer that monitored all the systems on the ship. So they would have this alarm that went off. So if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, and the bar is can't, can't close because they can't get their receipts to go through or something. I'm getting woken up and have to go there. There were several days where I literally, I would literally put, just put my head on the pillow and boom, be back up and, and do what you have to do and all. There's a, there's a very weird camaraderie that happens between the, on the ship's crews because we're all stuck out there together. And, you know, we're interna- it's an international cruise, so there could be over 150 different nationalities at any one time. Being American... Let's say it's back then the crew, let's say crew count was 900. There might be 30 Americans on the ship, 30 American crew members, right? So it's not an easy job for Americans to get. And so that was part of the mystique, I guess, is being American on a cruise ship working, especially in the role I was. But if you look, if you've ever been on a cruise, you'll always notice the Americans are always in like, they're not doing the stuff like being a waiter, unless you go to Hawaii. If you go to Hawaii in the um, Pride of America ship, 
you will see Americans as waiters, bartenders, and things like that. But on the international ships, you'll hardly ever see them. You'll see them as cruise director, cruise staff. There might be technical production, IT potentially. And that's about it. There's only like four or five departments that an American will work in, will be placed in on a cruise ship. And there's reasons behind that. Who won't succeed? Because I'm pretty sure people think like, yeah, cruise ship, fun. I get to work on a cruise ship. But then you get like, I could imagine if you have a family, divorces and all these other things. So who should not sort of take that type of job? First of all, if you're not a hard worker, like I said, you're going to work every day. You know, um, some days are going to be longer than other days. So that's the first disqualifier. If you are married and you have a family, you might have some struggles with that. You know, imagine you're going to be away. I was lucky. I had one of the shortest cycles, four and two. But sometimes those crew staff people, they're out there for six months, right? So you're half a year, you're away from your family. If you have a marriage and you're, and it's a rocky marriage, it's not solid. Yeah. You ain't going to want to, you're not going to want to be out there on there. It's not a job to get into the scam. You can't scam your way into those jobs. So, for instance, like what I did, systems manager, it's a tough job because there is no support, right? Once that ship pulls off that pier, you better know how to fix every piece of gear, um, computer IT things. And you have to be multidisciplined, right? Like I said earlier, networking, server administration, they still run mainframes out on those ships too. So you got to understand how that works not to mention point of sales and and all these other different things you have to know. So the interview process is um, pretty extensive because they don't want you to get out there and be like, oh, I can't get the ship to close. That's no good, you know. So you're not going to fake your way onto it. They are going to look for, for the assistant systems manager, That's an, you could call that an entry-level person, but you're still going to be, you're still going to have your CCNA you're still going to have your basic certifications that you have to have, and you're going to need to have exp- experience. Yeah, no, no way um, around that. Now, if you want to go for systems manager, yeah, you should have your CCNP. You should understand um, advanced server administration, maybe even some programming, because there's a lot of custom programs out there that if it stops working or you're, it's throwing errors, you got to be able to get into the code and take a look at it and and, and fix it sometimes. Now, I think they have a component around satellite communications because that's the one thing you don't think about is how do we could talk to the shore when we're out to sea? Satellite. So you have to understand how that works, which is where the CCNP comes in, the hand, in handy and all. So yeah, just a lot of experience. Um, but if you're lucky to get a job as an assistant, you can, you'll learn the job. And uh, after, when there's an opening and the cruise lines before pandemic, they were making these ships like every other month releasing a new one, right? So there was lots of growth there, but you know, it's, it's a good job. So not working hard. If you don't work hard, if you have a family, um, if you're not up on your skills, you're going to suffer. If you're looking for a nine to five, you're going to, you're not going to do well out there because it's not a nine to five job. Like I told you, you know, I was getting pages at two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes I might get another one at four, another one at eight. You know, I might be up all day long, especially on sea days. That's when you don't hit port. If you go in it just for the money, you're going to probably fail because it's, it's just a really tough life. You know, yes, the money is good. I was at that time, a systems manager made about $7,000 a month. You have no expenses. right? So everything I did on the ship was free. You know, I could just sign my name to the, in the bars or in the restaurants. 
if I wanted to go on a shore excursion, I would just go down and talk to my buddy in the shore excursion. You know, the manager like, hey, hook me up. I want to go see this. He's like, yeah, here you go. You know, um, so you can make a lot of money. So, um, and back then, until the end, back then they used to pay you in cash. Yeah, and they didn't take out taxes. You're an independent contractor. So you could literally, you know, making about $7,000 a month over a four-month period, you could bring home $28,000 cash. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I had several times where I had my little money belt strapped to me <laughs> with all this money on me and going in and all. But yeah, you know, now the two months you're off, you don't get paid, right? So, you know, here back then, you know, 7000 times eight, that's $56,000 a year. Now you still have to take out money for your taxes and everything else. You're making some good bank back then. And I would imagine that it's even crazier now. And I don't really pay you in cash anymore. I think. Yeah, now. yeah, they probably can't get away with that. Um, now, how would you say that industry has changed? Because back then, Wi-Fi technology wasn't as advanced. Now it's just, you know, much more connected and all that. How would you say that industry has changed in general? The cruise line industry? Yeah, just IT for a cruise line. Or would you say it's similar? I think it's very similar, but with a lot more enhanced services. You know, back then, the Wi-Fi would go out all the time. I'm sure it's much more stable now. Last time I was on a cruise ship was back in 2014, I want to say. And the displays were bigger. Like now we have these whole wall displays, which we didn't have before. We were we were lucky to have flat, flat panel monitors. You know? So now all that has to be done. Um, as far as I know, they still have mainframes, but they may not. It's, I would imagine they're using the cloud as well instead of having the on-premise um, data centers like we used to have. So I think that's that's something else that has happened. Also, um, you got more handheld devices, right? You got the iPads and the Surface computers that people are bringing on board, and they're probably and they're using them and all. So I think it's probably in the same vein as what you see in corporate today. You got to keep in mind that, you know, on these ships, there might be one systems manager and maybe one or two assistants. So you got two, three, four people at the most who have to maintain all that stuff. And you don't know what you're going to get when you're going to get it. And you and, and that's the, the thing. I don't want to jump on people just going for certs. When you get that real-world experience, that's where you see how it all works together and connects together. And if you're just going for certs, you're getting it siloed. But when you get into the real world, you'll see how the networking piece hits with the Wi-Fi piece, hits with the way the the um, computers are interacting. So you really have to understand how all that's working and, and realize that just because this monitor or this register isn't getting a signal, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the monitor. It may be a multiple things you got to look at to really get to what's happening with that register. No, th- thank you. That's phenomenal advice. So now you got the next job. How is that like for you? And how is the lifestyle different? Because now you're onshore, not traveling. It was a little different. So I was I was put in charge. I was a senior desktop support engineer uh, as well as um, a server administrator um, for a lot of servers <laughs> at Hawaiian Telecom. I made a lot of money there. I can't tell you, I was in Hawaii for a year and I can't tell you a thing about Hawaii. Um, I got an apartment that was right across the street from headquarters and I was, I was pulling 14 hour days. What had happened was um, this company called um, the Carlisle Group had purchased Hawaiian Telecom from Verizon. And part of the purchase was that Hawaiian Telecom had to get off of Verizon's backbone. What used to happen in Hawaii, this is kind of funny, was if you're in Honolulu 
and you wanted to call somebody in Oahu, <laughs> your call went to the States, mainland, then it went back down into Honolulu. Big picture, right? But every single call did that. If you wanted to call somebody across the street from you, it went to the States and it came right back to Hawaii, right? And so Verizon said, you got to, if you're going to take this over, you got to cut off that backbone. So everything happens within um, Hawaii. So that was, and they only had a year to do that. So we were busting our butt, you know, with the um, uh, switch centers, computers, just, we had to basically do a whole overhaul, IT overhaul of them. Not to mention that all of the support IT functions that were happening in Verizon, which were on the mainland, we had to bring into Hawaii as well. So we had to hire a whole bunch of people for network security and for other departments that we didn't have before. But a credit to the Hawaiians. You know, it's you probably have heard that, you know, if you're not from Hawaii, you're basically an outsider. And that's, that's very true. They're very family oriented. They are very close. I don't care how trying of a time they may have. I hardly ever saw them yelling or, or arguing with each other. They, they treated each other like they're all one big family. And it was really refreshing to see that and to be a part of that. I like to think I was accepted to a point, even then only to a point, because I was an outsider, you know. But um, it was really great, um, the, the camaraderie, the connections, just getting stuff done. The positive attitude, that whole Ohana um, vibe that they have down there, it was really great. And I, to this day, I still have a lot of respect for the Hawaiians. And um, for my fellow Hawaiians out there, I'm just like you. You all were annexed illegally. You all are still a country in that you should still have your sovereignty. My Hawaiian natives know what I'm talking about. So they know support of, of, of Hawaii of Hawaii independence. <laughs> no, that that's just amazing to hear. So was it the contract ended? What caused you to sort of move to the next job? I got island fever for one. Now, this is very interesting. And this this point is a what I call a pivot point in my life, an inflection point in my life. I got a call one day from this group that was working at Hawaiian Telecom, but they weren't actually, they were a Carlisle group. BU business unit. Now, the Carlisle Group, um, it's probably, as I tell people, if you've never heard of it, it's probably the largest company you've never heard of. And um, they are what I call the original venture capitalists. Back when people were talking about, oh, I got a million dollars, these guys were buying billion dollars, right? And they don't invest in little crappy stuff. They they go for infrastructure. Like I said, they bought Hawaii Telecom. That's a telephone infrastructure. Yeah. And they have other projects. But this group called me, it was like four people, and they said, hey, our server isn't working. And I told them, I was a server administrator, like, what server are you talking about? Oh, we got a server down here. What? We had a data center with all the servers, and what are you talking about? You have a server down there. So I went down there, and sure enough, they had a server down there. I'm like, what is this thing? They said, oh, it's our SharePoint farm. What's that? Never heard of it. But they told me that, you know, what was going on. I looked into it and I was like, oh, okay, it has a SQL backend. All right. Okay. Yeah. Your key's off. So I was able to set up, you know, fix the key. But when I was poking around and I was like, this looks very interesting. And I was asking like, well, how are you using it? And they were telling me how they were using it. And it was this and doing this. I was like, oh, wow. That afternoon, it was lunchtime. I went out with my friend, Mark. We went to Job Juice. We're walking back. And I told Mark, I said, I think I'm going to quit my job today. <laughs> He's like, what? I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to quit today. 
And he kind of laughed. And uh, we got, we made it back to Ytelcom. I went down to the data center where my boss was, Howard. And I told Howard that I wanted to work on this server called SharePoint. I wanted to spend more time on it. Now, Howard, at the time, he was at least 40 years into IT. He got involved with IT back when I, before I was born, back in the 60s, right? And he was like, what? He's like, why? He's like, oh, Jonathan, you know, your time is better spent being a server admin. You know, there's only four people that use this. We have over 2,500 other employees that need to be supported. And literally, Janae, my my life flashed in front of me. And all I saw was, I'm going to be updating servers. I'm going to be racking and stacking servers. I'm going to be answering these stupid tech calls. No, I don't want to do that. So right then and there, I told Howard, I said, well, if you're not going to let me work on SharePoint, I quit. He, he, Howard was kind of a brusque guy, but at one point he stopped, he stopped, he sat down. He says, Jonathan, are you sure you want to do that? I was like, yeah, I think so. He says, Jonathan, I've been in this game for a long time. Microsoft always puts up brand new software that they, most of which they don't do anything with. It, it, it ends up dying and you're about to stake your entire career on this. SharePoint thing, and he—I think he called it Point Share. <laughs> he didn't even call it, you know, the Point Share thing. And I said, "Yeah, I think so." So um, I gave my two weeks' notice, and he was happy for that. And I went back to my cubicle, and I was in my cubicle for maybe twenty minutes, and then security showed up. Yeah, because HR decided that no, we don't want your two weeks' notice. So I got escorted out of the building, and I went to—I um, want to say—I think it was Cop USA or Computer City or whatever it was. It was on Bishop Street. I walked down there, I went and bought a very expensive laptop and a flat screen monitor. So that was at least half of my savings. <laughs> and I'm walking back home with these two big bags. And I was like, what the hell have I done? I just, I'm in the most expensive metropolitan area in America. And I just quit my job. And I just took at least half of my savings and I dumped them into these products here. No big deal get back to my place, call my friend Mark. And I said, hey, Mark, I need the notebook. See, back then, all software for Microsoft came on CDs, CD-ROM. Yeah. And we had a notebook that had all the software in there. So he bought it over to me. And he was like, I can't believe you quit your job. Oh, my God. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Give me that notebook. <laughs> you know. So I took the notebook. And um, at the time, SharePoint was on. It was called, um, it's not the name you have it called right now. But um, I got that. It was, but it sat. It sat on the Microsoft Exchange CD. Yeah, yeah. And it was like a little file on the Exchange CD. So I burned that. I'm burning out copies of that. And uh, for the next thirty days, I basically just installed SharePoint, uninstalled SharePoint, installed SharePoint, broke SharePoint, uninstalled SharePoint, troubleshoot. I just that's all I did. I went downstairs. I would go downstairs, buy me some ramen noodles and some hot dogs and uh, some sodas. And I go back up and literally I did not know time at the time. I, that's all I did. Just did that, you know, and I really learned it very well. Ended up staying there about two months and, you know, the rent's expensive. So my little savings is like dwindling fast. And I was talking to my dad who lived in DC and I, he was like, why don't you come over here and hang out with us? I was like, sure. So I went over there and, um, Word started spreading that I knew SharePoint. So I started getting calls from people saying, hey, can you come and train us on this SharePoint thing? Or can you help us set up a SharePoint farm or having problems with a SharePoint site? Now, it helped. I skipped a lot of stuff. But, you know, during that time, I was doing the up, 
uh, installing and, and learning SharePoint. I was also on uh, different groups and I was talking to SharePoint people, Microsoft people. So I guess that's how the word spread that, hey, there's, there's this guy in D.C. And there are others around the country, too, but people came to me and I started actually just freelancing doing SharePoint stuff. So were you making a full-time income doing that? Not as much as I was making in Hawaii, but I could live. I could survive. You know, I was traveling like crazy because I was getting calls to go to Denver and Salt Lake City and other places. Um, I was doing a contract. I was doing some work for a government contracting company up there. And um, they asked me if I wanted to come work for them, being a SharePoint person. I was like, sure. So I started doing that, and I, which was primarily just doing SharePoint training, training end users and administrators how to what to do with SharePoint and all. And uh, that's where I got my full-time paid job being a SharePoint person and all. So that would have been around 2007, 2008. WSS, that's what it used to be called, WSS 2.0 or something like that. It was... It wasn't actually called SharePoint at the time. It was something like WSS. But that's how I got my first job. And um, I was working at the SEC. Um, I was a trainer, training office, but, uh, you know, SharePoint stuff too. Well, okay, a friend of mine, his name is Ducks. We, he was He's like a mentor to me. We were talking one night, one day, and he says, you ever thought about speaking? I was like, oh, no, I, I can't speak. You know, um, the people I'd seen who were speakers were, like gods to me. I was like, these get on the stage. Oh my God, what am I going to talk about? But they, he planted a seed in my head. And I said, Oh, I think I do want to speak, you know, and there was something called um, SharePoint Saturday was coming up. So I applied, say, I want to be a speaker. And I filled out the whole speaker request form and they accepted me. I was like, Oh my God. So I had forgotten what topic I'd written down. <laughs> I had to figure out the topic that to put together my presentation and um, I gave the presentation. It was really awesome. Now, when I was putting together the presentation, though, one night, I was it was late at night, and um, you how you get bored and you start surfing somewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Start surfing. And I, I came across O'Reilly Media, the publishing company, and they have this whole page or pages on how to get published. So I read the information. I was like, oh, that's pretty neat. You know, good to know. Shelved it in my head and kept it going. Well, after I gave the presentation, it was awesome because I gave the presentation. It was supposed to be like 45-minute presentation, 15-minute question answer. The question answer went for an hour. And the organizers actually came in and said, hey, look, you're supposed to clear out this room, but we can see there's a lot of engagement here. So we're just going to move the next presentation to another room. And I was driving home and I was like, wow, this is, that was an awesome presentation. Everybody loved it. I can make a book out of this. And then I remembered from surfing a few weeks back, so I put together a um, proposal, book proposal for the book, and I submitted it, and um, it got rejected. <laughs> it got rejected, and I was kind of bummed out, but I was like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redo, redo this book thing, and I'm going to get this deal. And about a week later, I got a call from an editor at O'Reilly. It was the editor who rejected my publication. So he says, hi, my name is Kenyon. I'm the one who rejected your publication. I'm like... The nerve, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> rubbing in my my face or something. And he says, no, the reason I rejected you is because we already have secured our publishing schedule for the year. So what, what they do a lot of times, and this is advice for anybody who wants to get published, they set up these things called publishing schedules. So at a certain point around April, I think it is, they finalize what books are going to publish that year. Okay. 
my book proposal in after they had finalized that. So they didn't, mm. they didn't reject it because it was a bad book or a bad idea. It was just they were locked up already. He says, yeah, so we can't bring it on. He said, but there is this other book that the author can't finish. I liked your writing style because I submitted actually the first chapter. Yeah, yeah. He said, I like your writing style. and It's very close to how the other author writes. Would you be willing to write the book? I was like, sure, I guess. And he says, yeah, you know, we got a couple chapters from him, but you, you know, you can throw them away if you want. You don't have to use them. You can just do whatever you want with the book. I was like, oh, okay, well, it's a pretty big book. I think I better use whatever he has. I better make it work. And he sent me the pages and I was like, oh, I can't use these pages. You know, also I had five weeks to write the book. <laughs> so I ended up just um, writing the book from scratch almost. I used a couple of stuff from, from, from Chris and all. And actually I got to talk to him because I was like, what were you thinking in this area? And what were you thinking in this area? And so he, he helped really helped me collaborate. And that's why on that book, his name is there because he helped me put together the book, the original author. It almost didn't get written, though. I was like two weeks in, and up to that point, every computer book I had read was boring. It was all black and white text, a couple of black and white illustrations of flowcharts and stuff that made no sense. And I said, I want to make a different book. I want to make a book that's going to be appealing, and it's going to make people want to read it, right? So SharePoint was still relatively new. So this is around 2010 I'm writing this book. And um, they had just released SharePoint 2010 that I had, I, because of my experience, I already had an advanced copy of it. So I've been working with it for a while. So I wrote the book, but it was very basic. I was talking about things like how to upload a document, how to create a library, just basic stuff. And I remember I was talking to my editor several times. I'm like, this book is so stupid. You know, nobody's going to read this book. Everybody knows this knowledge. And he was like, no. Not everybody knows it. You know it because you've been doing it for so long and you're talking to other people, but there are millions of people who've never even touched SharePoint, even know what it is. Write the book. So we ended up writing the book and I got it done in five weeks. And um, that was SharePoint 2010, plain and simple. I call it the SharePoint coloring book and it's out of print now, but it's still on Amazon. People are still selling copies of it used copies, but it's very colorful. <laughs> it's very colorful. We got step-by-step -step instructions and lots of screenshots. It's a very pretty book. I love the way it looks, you know? So while I was writing it, my editor told me, says, you know, you have one competitor that we can see. And that is the SharePoint 2010 for dummies written by the, the for dummies group, the IDT group, a group that I respected a lot because I used their books. I was like, oh my God, how are we going to compete against them? They, they, do the, they do it right. And I went to Barnes & Noble and I picked up a copy of it because, you know, Barnes & Noble, you just grab the book and sit yeah. down. You don't have to buy it. You just get yeah, it. Yeah. I used to work at Barnes & Noble, so I know. Yeah, you know. I don't think I've ever bought a book out of Barnes & Noble. I read them. I read a lot yeah. of books there, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the paid library, I guess. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. yeah. So I went through that whole book in that afternoon and I was like, this ain't nothing. So I called the editor back and I said, we're going to beat their asses. Literally, I said, we're going to beat their asses. He's like, are you sure? I was like, we're going to, that book sucks. Our book is much better than that book. And um, so we finished the book. The book was released right before the SharePoint 2010, the SharePoint conference, which they changed the name. I forget what the name of the conference is now, but it, it was Microsoft's, one of Microsoft's largest co conferences after Build. 
I think that year they had like 30,000 people show up and it was in Anaheim, I think. But we released the book and it sold. It sold like crazy. I mean, I'm getting my monthly reports on book sales. And I'm like, oh my God, you know? And I was like calling my editor, like, "Is this, are these numbers right? He's like, yeah, they're all right. Now here's the funny thing. About a month, maybe six weeks after my book came out, the SharePoint 2010 for Dummies book got pulled. They pulled it off the shelves. And um, my editor told me about this. So yeah, they just pulled it off. I was like, why'd they pull it off? He's like, I guess you're beating them. You're beating them in the sales or something's not right. About a month or two later, they put a new book out, SharePoint 2010 R2. So anybody, if you have your, if you have the SharePoint 2010 for dummies book, look to see, do you have uh, the revision two edition? That was the edition they put out after my book came out. But the R1 version, it disappeared. So if you got R1, then for the collectors, you may have a lot of money there. But that was a few. And I, my understanding, I'm not sure if this is true, but that was one of the few times that they've ever pulled a book. And it happened so fast. Because remember, they didn't release SharePoint 2010 to the public until like October when our book came out. And they'd already had a SharePoint 2010 book out like around June or June or July. So it was only out for a few months and they pulled it. So yeah, we beat their asses, just like I predicted we would. And later on that year, I actually got an award for the book from the International Association of Technical Writers for one of the best written books of 2010. Technical books of 2010 and all. So that book led to another book, SharePoint 2010, all in one, I think, or the Bible. I can't remember the name of this the second one. But that was a collaborative book I did with about five other authors. And we each did like three or four chapters a piece. That book did pretty good. And then uh a while, a little bit after that, SharePoint 2013 came out. And I was asked again, would I do a follow-up book on SharePoint 2013? Uh, and I was like, sure, you know, we'll use the same format we did for 2010, but we'll just update it for the new interface and new things to do. One thing about me is in the IT world, I realized that minorities and women, we don't get many opportunities that I could see. It was really, if you went to a conference, you saw the same type of person presenting. So when 2013 came out, I wanted to bring a woman onto the book as well. And I was working with a young lady, Michelle Lopez, and I reached out to her and I said, hey, would you co-author this book with me? And we brought her on board. And also we brought Scott on board too and all. But that was a very deliberate thing. And she didn't want to do it at first. She was like, I don't know anything about SharePoint. You know, I was like, you know a lot about it. We, that's what we do all day. She's like, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, you got to do this. So we bought her, we got her on the book as well. And uh, that book sold well. <laughs> we did great on that book as well. But after that third book, I was burnt out. Oh, because I'd written these books within a two-year period. You know? And this is on top of your work, too. Yeah, and I had a full-time job, right? So a lot of people don't realize when I was writing, I was working full-time. So I would get home. I wouldn't start write, writing until like 10 o'clock at night. And I would write until 3. I had to take a nap, wake up at 6, because I lived in Columbia, so and I worked in D.C. So I had to get up around 6 to get on the road by 7 to get to work by 8. And then I would work a full day, get home, have dinner, play with my daughter, and then start up writing again. So it, it was really tiring. And I felt like, you know, I've written three books. 
And they're all bestsellers. I mean, it, it's funny to me when I go back on Amazon, here it is, what, 12 years later, and I still see those books are hitting the top top of their categories still. I'm like, wow, they're in the top 50. <laughs> you know, even though you can't even buy the books anymore, it's still there at all. But I was just burnt out and I just didn't want to write it more. I still get calls. My editors, my old editor and other editors call me up and say, hey, you want to write a book? And I'm like, no. No, I'm just not there yet. And now at this stage of my life, I want to use my platform to promote other authors. So there's been a couple people who've come to me who wanted to write a book. And I'm like, I'll show you what to do. <laughs> you, know? you want to talk to an editor? Hold on. You know, I'll get Kenny on the phone, like talk to this guy, you know. And next thing I know, they get they're getting a book deal and they're they're happy about that. So that's what I do now is expand on that. Okay. So now when did you sort of get into the family business? Because I know now you currently work for the family business. When that happened? My last corporate job, I was working at a startup and I was a vice president of application development. So that was the highest I got. I got laid off because of financing issues, I think. I don't know what the problem was. I started my own business, Tech Force, and we were just doing you know high-level IT strategy and planning, consulting type stuff and all. I was doing that. And then the um, COVID hit. And I had a pretty healthy client list. However, you know, when COVID hit, the last calls I got were basically companies saying, hey, how do we get our employees to work remotely? So I helped them and then the business just kind of went away. So I was I was floating, if you will. I had a, some money saved up that I was able to live off of for several months. And uh, one day I got a call from my dad and he's he was running a company and he says, hey, I'm tired. I want to retire. I would like you to come and run Symbiot. Well, no, initially it was, I want you to come and run a division in Symbiot. I was like, okay. So I went, I got there and Symbiot, we do primarily government contracting. So for the last 37 years, we've done different contracts for different agencies. I like to tell people, if there's a government agency that you can think of, I would say there's like a 90, 85 to 90% chance Symbiot has done work in there. All the way up to and including the White House. You know, we actually rewired the White House, um, installed, replaced their two-pair copper in the whole White House, from the West Wing to the Oval Office to the residents, everything. So we've been around. But when I got there, remember, I used to do government contracting as a contractor, and I didn't really like it. You know, the RFP cycle is very long, you know, and you spend a lot of money, and you're not guaranteed to win. And it's just very slow. And I've been used to being in corporate where it's like, hey, you know, just spoke to the guy yesterday and here we are a month later and deal's closed. Let's go. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Kind of a thing. So I wanted to bring B2B back to the company because we had did some B2B stuff. We've done work with um, SAIC, Siemens, RJ Reynolds, and, and other companies and all. But we hadn't done it for 20 years. So I want to bring that back. And uh, that's where I learned about CMMC, the DOD's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. And um, it's something that every company that does business with DOD has to get a certified in, right? And that included us because we have DOD contracts. And while I was reading it, I was like, there's a lot of work you got to do to get this thing done. And I was like, talking to my dad, I was like, I can do that. You know, we can we can do this because I understand it. But then I started thinking, I was like, but most small and medium-sized businesses can't do that because this is it's a lot of technical stuff in the back end of, of implementing it and also just understanding the regulations around it. So I had this bright idea of like, we're going to offer services to assist companies with getting CMMC certified. 
Okay. So I put together an entire business plan and uh, just so happens when I did that, I was, um, I heard about the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business program and I applied, went through that process, got accepted and went through the 10 KSB program, which was, I call it MBA bootcamp, 12 weeks and they hit everything. And um, it's tough because you're, you're looking at an additional two to three hours a day of work, you know, that you have to do while you're in the program, aside from your regular work you're doing. Once that happened, I um, put together my business plan, had the business unit up. My dad said, okay, make it work. And I started just refining it and then started just selling it. I didn't get very good traction initially because it was all brand new. So I, I was doing a lot of educating people about this CMC program and then saying, and here's the value that Symbiont can give to you for that. And it's a lot of work and it's expensive, you know, to, to get it done. But I did manage to come up with solutions that wasn't so expensive, right? So we have multiple tiers that are available. But again, it's it is it was um it was like trying to sell imagine trying to sell somebody their very first apple. Yeah, yeah. They don't even know what an apple is. You gotta explain yeah, yeah, that, yeah. the benefits and you know, convince them and everything else. So now um we're we got some traction and we have companies that are buying. Like right now we're about to start up a brand new contract uh, down in Orlando uh next week, the assist company. So I'm very happy about that. Something that started off as a dream, um to see it turn into reality has been very powerful for me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so interesting. And now you, you've done so much. Now, I kind of want to ask you, what were some mistakes you made along the way? You know, the interesting thing about mistakes is I, I'm a person that believes, I'm, I'm fairly religious. I believe that we all have our path. And even though we may take something that we think is a, is a mistake, it lends itself to the path. Right. So certain things that I would call a mistake now, I always look back and say, well, you know, I learned something from that. If I hadn't made that error, I wouldn't have learned that lesson. Right. And then I would have probably made an even bigger mistake later on down the road. But some things I wish I would have done differently, you know, I didn't go to college because of certain situations. I didn't go to college. And I, I do wish sometimes I did. There were a lot of times that I, I had to learn from the school of hard knocks. And it would have been nice to have known the theory. It would have been nice to have had that, you know, I've had to learn and work at the same time. It would have been nice to have been in a, you know, four years or however long, just all I got to do is learn. Because I've always been a learner. I, I like learning and all. But I don't think that's a mistake necessarily because I had to make my own route. And um, I've been very fortunate. You know, even though I don't have a college degree, I've given presentations at MIT to professors and, and other graduates of MIT at on campus. Um, I was actually a college professor. I taught college <laughs> without a degree. And I think when I speak, especially now, I can relate more real-time stories than just spewing out stuff that, uh, that makes no sense. <laughs> Not saying that if you go to college, you don't make any sense. You do make sense at all. But um, I, I also see IT differently. You know, um, I don't have the restrictions of you can't do this because this rule says this can't be done. I still get excited about IT, IT the same as I was when I was 11 years old. You know, now I was in the trenches doing the technical stuff and that I'm not, I don't want to do anymore. I'm done with that. Um, I do like where I'm at right now. 
where I get to talk to senior leadership, senior executives uh, at companies and help them to know, here's the possibilities. Here's what needs to be done. Here's why it affects your business and talk on that. I love developing solutions like what I was talking about with the CMMC. You know, that's a problem. I identified it. And then I came up with a solution, which turned into a service that I can market and I can sell. I guess I'm a very entrepreneurial in my spirit as it is already. And this plays really well at this time of my life for me. Um, other mistakes. You know, I wish a lot of times I would have stayed in better contact with a lot of friends that I made along the way. There are a lot of people who I was very close to and now not so close. And some of them, I can't even tell you where they are right now. But um, I did, luckily, that wasn't, that wasn't the rule. I have a lot of connections still that I'm still very active with. In fact, I had an issue the other day and I went on LinkedIn and went straight to people I worked with and said, hey, I need help. And they all were like, you know, 10 toes down right there, you know, to help. And that's something I would advise for, especially younger people is, the connections that you make, the networking that you make, be careful about burning any bridges. Always make something because you never know when something's going to come back around and when you may need it again or when they may need you. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So you've done so much. What are your future goals now? Okay, up until Symbion, I never had company loyalty to any company. Never. Uh, Symbion is the first company that I have loyalty to. And that's because it's my family's business. My grandfather started it. And I am third generation. So my whole goal now is to grow the business, but more importantly, to leave something, leave it behind for the next generation. My daughter, my nieces and nephews, that they have a leg up. You know, I got a leg up because my parents, my parents got a leg up because their parents. So now me, it's my job to give that next generation of our family that leg up. So they, they don't have to go through the same things and uh, keep this legacy grow, growing and, and going. You know, it, there's something very empowering for me to work at Symbiont because it's not just a job. It, this is hard work that started back in 1985 with my grandfather who just had an idea. You know, we've done, we've been through everything, you know, all the crises that you could think of. And to be a black owned family business, and be able to say, we're 37 years old. That, to me, is a, a big sense of pride for me. And no, that's amazing. I do have a, I have a, not a bit, I have a very big ego about it. Yeah, look, you, know? you got you to own it. Yeah, we, I totally own it. <laughs> and, um, you know, my brother and my sister, my cousins, they're, they're going to be the board members. So we keep it all in the family. And we're all of the same thought of, we got to keep this going to the next generation. And so we're raising our, my daughter, my nieces and nephews with understanding the family and understanding what this business is so that when they get to the age of taking over the reins, they, they take it forward too. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. How would people support you, follow you? I'm always available to people for advice, be it career, be it business, you know, um, like you and I were talking about earlier, you know, running a business is what happens after you, you get established, right? Once you get your INC or you get your formation documents done, now what? You know, and I'm always open to, to tell you my story or tell you my experiences. The IT world, you know, I can talk tech, but I, I'm just not technical anymore. You know, SharePoint, I love it to death. Um, I, it, that, that 
I have a big long history with it, but even today, you know, I'm like, I don't, I don't keep up with it. You know, in fact, um, the other day I was, I started unsubscribing to all these SharePoint mailing lists I used to be a part of because I'm like, it's just, I'm not in that world anymore. But, you know, I can help people with IT uh, strategy thinking around and things like that and all. But, you know, I'm on Twitter, as you well know, so people can reach me there easily. Don't be ashamed to drop into the DMs. My apologies if you don't get a response from me right away, because sometimes I just can't get to them. Um, but if you're if you work for a company and you're looking at wanting to improve your cybersecurity, you know, reach out to me too. You know, we have several solutions around that. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. Man, I know you well compared <laughs> to other people, but I still learn so much more about your history. I learned a lot. So cool. I'll catch you on Twitter Spaces. I really appreciate you. And I know the listeners got a lot of value out of this. Great. Take care, everyone. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem nodegree.com